Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm here um, with my co-host, Tina Pippin. I'm Lucia Holsether, and it is a real honor to welcome to the podcast today key members of the team behind the multi-award-winning investigative project and public history resource, Land Grab U. Um, Land Grab U exposes and then meticulously documents the massive scale on which so-called land grant universities in the United States have benefited and continue to benefit from the expropriation, theft, and occupation of indigenous land and territories. Extensive and complex primary source research that was carried out by a kind of multidisciplinary team um, is organized in this project into an interactive, publicly accessible GIS mapping platform that allows users um, of all levels of sort of technological literacy and familiarity with the topic um, to visualize the intimate connections between higher education in the United States and the systematic dispossession of over over 250 um, native tribes. Land Grab U has rightfully received numerous honors, including a George Polk Award for education and an honor um, from investigative reporters and editors. This is a deeply collaborative project that has a lot of people involved, um, but at the top of the masthead are the names of three people who led the reporting, research, and sort of graphic design of, um, of, of the whole thing. Their names are Bobby Lee, Tristan Atone and Margaret Pierce. And we are so delighted to have all three of them here with us today. And now um, just so listeners, y'all get a sense of their kind of their voices and who's talking, I'm gonna give them a chance to go one by one introducing themselves. Margaret, do you wanna go first? Sure. Bojo Jayek, Makosakoyan Dejnikas, Shishibani and Dao. I'm Margaret Pierce. I'm a uh, member of Citizen Potawatomi Nation, um, and Data. I live on Penobscot territory in Maine, in the US. Thank you. Bobby, do you wanna go next? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Bobby Lee. I'm a lecturer in American history at the University of Cambridge. Okay, and Tristan. Uh, hi, I'm Tristan. I'm the in chief at the Texas Observer. Uh, I'm a member of the Kiowa tribe and I'm uh, here in Austin, Texas on the easternmost boundary of uh, my own tribe's territories. Right. Welcome to all of you. Yeah, thank you for being with us on Nothing Never Happens. Uh, we're, I'm excited to find out more about your project for our listeners and uh, to draw that into how it um, materializes in classrooms uh, and also in, in university systems. And so um, if you could, for our listeners, introduce the evolution of the land grab pro universities project and how you came together as a team to make it happen. Oh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll take that. I'm seeing a finger in my, my direction. Um, well, this project, it was a multi-year project. Um, and we worked on it between 2018 and 2020. And it really got jump started in 2018, I guess it's mid-January or February. Uh, Tristan and I were both on fellowships at Harvard at the time, 
And I was giving a talk based on some of my research on um, uh, public land distribution in the United States, showing how you could use new methods uh, in digital analysis and geospatial analysis uh, to identify um, and uh, to identify and tie together the um, the indigenous nations and the universities um, that were connected through the Morrill Act of 1862. Um, and the pitch, I had sort of done the initial bit of research on the project and the, the pitch at the end was uh, for help because I knew it, I'd gotten to the point where uh, where I figured out how, how massive of an effort it would take to sort of unspool the knot completely. Um, and uh, luckily, Tristan was in the audience and he came up to me afterwards and we got to talking and that is when the Land Grab Universities project uh, took off. And Margaret, how did you end up becoming involved? You know, you did a lot of the, the mapping. I think um, you guys, Bobby and Tristan, reached out to me in 2019 sometime, summer maybe. Maybe Tristan, I heard from you in the summer or early fall of that year, um, asking me if I wanted to work on the graphics for the project. And I, of course, said yes. And at that time, I don't think, yeah, I never met Tristan, but had worked with him at a distance. And so, and it's, we've been working together ever since. It's been great. Yeah, you have all three made something that was behind the veil and, and rather invisible uh, in US history, visible. And for that, I have such great appreciation and awe for this project, the, the initial High Country News investigation, your New York Times article and, and the website and, and everything. Um, so if you could talk about this, the Morrill Act of, of 1862 and how it's not in the past, it still lives in terms of all these connections of um, the, the theft of uh, indigenous land and the profit from it for, that universities have. And, you know, get us, get us into um, sort of the, the bones of your project. I can tell you a little bit about the, the background on the Morrill Act, and then maybe Tristan, you could talk a little bit about the, the connections um, into, uh, into the present and more about the project itself. Um, so the Morrill Act of 1862 is, well, you probably encounter it in a high school textbook in US history. It's a Civil War era law. It comes in a year where there's sort of the big three uh, land laws that are passed by uh, passed by Congress, the Homestead Act, which is the really big one, um, in which individuals can get um, uh, settlers can can obtain uh, land at no cost if they live on it uh, for five years and then they'll receive title. There's also the Pacific Railway Act that same year, um, within a couple of months, that. Uh, laid out these checkerboard-shaped grants for uh, railroad corporations to build uh, to build uh, railways across the continent, and then there was the Morrill Act of 1862, which distributed roughly 11 million acres uh, to fledgling colleges across the United States. And once territories became states, they became eligible uh, to take part 
uh, in this law. Um, and those lands would then be sold off, uh, leased or, or otherwise uh, or otherwise utilized to raise endowments for these colleges. And the story that's been associated with these uh, with these colleges is that this land was sort of like manna from heaven. It came from nowhere. It was a donation from the federal government. Um, and the Land Grab Universities Project uh, was looking at this land as a type of wealth transfer uh, from indigenous nations uh, to land grant universities uh, in order as, as seed money uh, to, launch, uh, to launch their operations. And uh, to to piggyback off of that, into sort of how this is still going on, part of the part of the research that we were doing in terms of looking at that land, um, and still making a clear connection to the present was obviously in in the in the work of identifying these parcels, but also looking at uh, who profiting off of these lands. Um, to some degree, it was sort of a fluke that we uh, we figured that out. Uh, we had been in our final sort of fact check process, uh, we were checking with different states to make sure that uh, our paperwork and, and seeing that schools still some acreage, uh, schools still had some acreage that were that was associated with the Morrill Act. And in that process, we found out that uh, they were still profiting off of those acres either by surface rights or uh, mineral rights. Um, and that came back, I think it was, we were corresponding with Utah and they sort of got back to us and like, oh, and we still have X amount of bikers making X amount of dollars. And uh, it was sort of, you know, it was sort of a light bulb to say, oh, wait a second, there's a whole other thing on here, which was what our uh, follow-up stories were about too, so. I'm wondering if y'all might each be willing to share as something like that in the course of doing this research. Of course, you uncovered so much, so many documents, which I'm sure at times would it must have been just like, you know, looking at like pages of numbers and organizing them into into systems and charts and all of that. But is there like, is there a particular vignette or anecdote or even figure or experience you had while researching that that just kind of flashes up to you um, or you can't let go of? Um, keeps following you around. Well, there are there are both uh, figures and moments in research. I think I think for me the most um, the most exciting moment in the the research process for the the project um, and really an illuminating moment for uh, understanding the sort of the the power of doing this in a collaborative mode versus sort of going uh, uh, going it alone into the archives was towards the end where we. Um, we're scrambling. We were maybe about a month out from publication and we were combing back through the data. Um, and we realized that we had missed some of it, um, that there were about 100,000 or 150,000 acres uh, of land in New Mexico uh, uh, missing, from the, missing from the data set. Um, this, went, this was as it was going through the fast fact check uh, process. Um, and in order to get that, we had uh, Kaylin Goodluck, who's not with us today, was a photographer on the project who lives in New Mexico. Um, he was able to take a quick visit um, to the BLM office and go and uh, talk with the archivist there um, and then FaceTime with me uh, in Cambridge in England. 
Uh, so I could tell the archivists uh, the type of material that we were that we needed to find. Uh, and so they helped us locate the microfilm uh, that we were looking for. And then uh, Kaylin was showing me the stuff on the on the on the screen, on the microfilm screen, uh, saying, uh, you know, yes, this uh, this we need, this we this we don't. Uh, and we were able to collect those last, you know, 100, 150,000 acres. I mean, this is you know, 1% or something of the of the total data set, you know, 11, 11 billion acres. Um, and then we all split it up and were able to transcribe it very quickly. We had, we had to transcribe a ton of this material um, and we were able to get that last bit in, uh, which was, which enabled us to, uh, to push over the threshold of obtaining um, in excess of 99% of the acreage uh, distributed um, through the through the Morrill Act, which was a uh, which was a high bar that we had set for ourselves and that we were we thought we were at, but uh, we realized at the last moment uh, we we weren't quite there. Um, and it really, I mean, that wouldn't have been possible without uh, the types of tools that we have nowadays. You know, that we're able to you know have a conversation while we're all sitting in rooms in different uh, countries, in different parts of the United States or abroad. Uh, and also having this uh, this group, this team working on this project that enabled us to uh, bring it across uh, the finish line like that. I feel like we should have said more specifically in the beginning that we were really uh, international team, and I mean that tribally internationally as well. So we, in the end, um, as things progressed and the team grew, we were three native people and three white people working together. And it was that collective of um, bringing our skills and experience and our, um, our backgrounds to the story that I think was really key to how we made, the, how, how it ended up looking and, and acting. I just think about what option uh, to go to uh, the lecture Bobby was giving at Harvard during the time during the fellowship or go get a beer with friends. I often wonder what would have happened if I had gone and gotten that beer instead. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have had a, the opportunity to be such an amazing project. So it's sort of those amazing choices that you make uh, that, that really have uh, lasting and huge impact. So. Well, oh, your question also made me think of um, something that's already come up, which was for me the the um, the aspect of the story that has really stuck with me is that um, that story of the the universities that continue to hold these parcels. Mm -hmm. So these are these lands were were they received these lands for free. They did not pay for these lands, and they were taken against nations will. And, you know, they can, some, some universities can say, well, we're, we're technically profiting from them, but those numbers are so low. Um, but <laughs> I, I see that as just really profound complacency and um, like recreational harm. And um, there's no, re I see no reason why those lands um, can't be given back. And I think that's, um, that has stuck with me, the, the present holdings. Yeah, I want to push a little further on that uh, important point that you just made, Margaret, um, 
in the in the New York Times article um, that Bobby and Tristan wrote, you said uh, instead of clinging to an origin story that um, that states with uh, with starts with free land, those universities have a chance to acknowledge depth debts that are impossible to replay, but unconscionable to ignore. So with all these universities, I get e constant emails from friends and other institutions where they have the little um, land acknowledgement statement at the bottom that seems to have a kind of absolving function. Um, my own college is working on that such a statement and um, not that those statements are unimportant, but how deep do they go in acknowledging, um, you know, the ongoing theft and ongoing genocide and ongoing, you know, everything about um, the connections of, of universities with these projects. And then I guess with that, what do you see happening that is um, uh, universities taking a step toward uh, reparation and justice, if, if any of that is at all possible. Yeah, land acknowledgements were, um, uh, were an issue that we raised in the, in the story. Um, and these have been around maybe for the past 10, 15 years uh, in the United States, in Canada, um, elsewhere. Um, and these are, uh, these are useful and often uh, very well-meaning uh, statements. I think the approach that we were taking was thinking of them um, as, a, as a starting point uh, for action. They have very little meaning if there's no, if there's no action behind it. Um, that's one level. And, the, and another is um, identifying, you know, what are, what are those, uh, what are the debts? What are we acknowledging? I mean, in the, with regards to the history of the Moral Act um, and land-grant universities, what you wouldn't see in land acknowledgement statements at a um, you know, at a place like uh, the University of Tennessee or Cornell University uh, or the University of Maine um, would be any, any acknowledgement of lands that were outside um, the campuses themselves uh, that the universities may have benefited from. I mean, the lands that were involved in, uh, in the Morrill Act were often distant. They were hundreds, thousands of miles away uh, from the from the universities that were benefiting from them, uh, and they lay outside the scope of uh, of land acknowledgments. You are seeing in the wake of the in the wake of the project, we have seen a, a few universities start to to rewrite um, their uh, their land grant mission statements or acknowledgments to um, to include some of the data. We've seen a little bit of this, um, and we've also seen uh, some developments at, at land-grant universities where faculty and staff has, have started to organize um, to start to address some of the questions um, that you were raising earlier, which is the big question to come out of this story, uh, which is, what do you do with this information? Uh, now, that we, now that we were able to sort of gather uh, what the picture of the Moral Act looks like on the ground, uh, what do you do with that information? And those are the discussions that are happening right now in the wake of the story. There's a couple institutions that have responded in, with formal, formalized um, actions. And 
there's there's numerous links at the landgrabu.org website under the um, under the stories tab uh, under the word initiatives. And one that immediately comes to mind is Ohio State University. They they applied for and got a grant specifically for addressing uh, looking more in depth at their own moral act legacy and um, deciding what their what their actions are going to be. And I believe University of Minnesota also, they had a, there's a position that they created that was to look specifically at the Moral Act data as well. But that's, um, you can see all of that at the, under the stories section of the website. One thing I'm curious to hear y'all reflect about um, is sort of the role of sort of statistical analysis and even sort of like literacies around like using archives and figuring out how to crunch numbers in this way for the kind of activism and organizing um, that that we're now talking about in terms of next steps. So, um, you know, those uh, those listeners who who do look at the project or who have already will see like immediately when going to land grab you, you're just, um, anyone who's looking at it is just kind of confronted with all of these like really overwhelming and like um, massive numbers of, um, that, that describe the, the sort of scale of dispossession. So there's 160 violence-backed land sessions, nearly 11 million acres taken from over 250 tribes, 52 land-grant institutions launched off of this, 80,000 individual land parcels and it just kind of goes on and on and you know you can um listeners will know like you can look and see okay how much how much has Cornell University or the University of Tennessee or whatever college like profited off of this over the years um so I'm curious about kind of um as we like I think about I think about projects like within sort of um Bobby you may sort of have come across this like the kind of history of capitalism movement where teaching historians and activists like how do you read like investor like number crunching books in order to kind of have a better analysis of of what's going on or like what is the use of this kind of um statistical um literacy, um, what's it good for, where does it go, and how do you keep these kinds of abstract numbers from becoming abstractions and keep them sort of connected to the many, many individual stories and losses that they, um, that they describe? Um, I, have, I have thoughts on this, I'm sure Margaret and Tristan do as well. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll say um, upfront in regards to, you know, thinking about how to do research and do um, uh, do work with um, quantitative quantitative sources, the significance of this in terms of the, the subject matter of this story, which is really a small sliver of the history of indigenous dispossession and state formation um, in the United States. Um, and where numbers can come in and be very useful um, is making this uh, process real and intelligible um, to, to readers. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think most um, Americans learn in school um, is uh, that there was US expansion and indigenous peoples lost their land. But this is such a massive process um, that it's easy to push into the background. Um, when you can make that real by identifying 
you know, this is Cornell University. It got a million acres. Um, it came mostly from the Ojibwe people, but also was scattered in 17 other states. It raised X amount of dollars over so many years. Um, you can, uh, you can uh, make the process of dispossession and various forms of state formation uh, tangible um, in a way with, with numbers. I mean, there are also uh, other critical elements to that. I mean, the numbers themselves can be uh, vast and confusing. I mean, this is where uh, Margaret's work was so critical uh, on, the, on the project to try to um, take this data set uh, that we had produced uh, and to make it um, intelligible in graphic form for this story. Now, I'll, I'll echo your words about, I like the use of the word tangible because I feel like that is so key. Like um, we can use that word dispossession or stolen land till we're blue in the face, but it's when we make those histories tangible that then we can make tangible change. And um, for me, that's a really important part of any project. Um, yeah, I would, I, as the cartographer, I would push back on the perception that, that maps and charts are um, less capable of conveying the emotional dimensions of um, a narrative. They are, language, just like photography and writing are both languages and um, depends on what you do with them. Um, it's not they're, they're, they're not by nature um, incapable of moving us. So in these maps, I was doing a number of specific things. I was making call outs in both the maps and the charts to um, focus the reader's attention in on those places or those moments where there are abrupt changes in the data or there's some kind of density or sparsity in the data and going into what's happening in the data set and then reading up to find out what that story is and pulling it out for the reader so that the reader just doesn't look at this barrage of dots or a barrage of points on a graph and then just turn the page because, oh, wow, their impression is there's a lot of numbers there rather than the impression I hope they're getting, which is there are a lot of stories there and here are just a few of them. Um, I write the titles in a particular way. I'm, writing, I'm speaking directly to the reader when I'm writing the titles. I designed the legends in a particular way. So, so often um, we draw on this problematic source, Charles Royce's Indian Land Sessions, and uniformly um, refer to all of these transactions as sessions, which is not what they are as a whole. Um, they include seizures and executive orders and coercive um, paperwork of all kinds. Um, so just speaking to that in, a, in, a, in an abbreviated way in the legend, I think goes a long way to, um, to affecting how, what people take away from, from a map. And then Tristan had the brilliant idea of 
showing the um, each LGUs, each land grant institutions, actual parcel holdings in using the convention of an airline map. So we could see them all tethered to all of their individual thousands of parcels. And that image, um, to me, that image removes this story from this murky, foggy past. Oh, that's that happened so long ago that doesn't involve us to, and it brings it right into the present to um, reframe it as the identity of the institution today. And um, so that, even though I was pretty resistant to that idea when he first pitched it to me, I was, because I thought, oh, it's just gonna be this big mess. There's just so many, there's too many parcels. Um, but we figured it out. It didn't turn out to be a big mess. It turned out to be really, really useful. Yeah, I wanna build on that and encourage our listeners to go to the website. And my experience of it was it was the maps were dynamic. You had to click, you had to find out. I was all over the map, so to speak, like what's going on in California. Um, Gavin Newsom did this huge apology, right? And he actually called it an ongoing genocide. Um, and then uh, what's going on in Michigan? Well, it's kind of contained and why is that? And then all these colleges from the East, including in my home state, the University of Georgia, what the heck are they doing in, you know, on the West Coast and points in between? And it, it led me to those, those important stories. And I, I think the, the website is, is brilliant um, because it, it makes you, at least my experience, like engage it and, and go deeper into it. Well, the website is the work of Jeff McGee and Cody Leff. Cody was the programmer and Jeff being the overall designer and compiler and cartographer there. And um, that kind of leads me to another point I want to make, which is that no aspect of this project, or at least as I understand it, maybe <laughs> you guys feel differently, but everything, nothing is meant to, to stand independently. Everything works together. So it's the words, it's the way that Tristan and Bobby are writing. It's the way that, um, that Jeff has presented the numbers for each university on each of the university's individual page, that juxtaposition of what they are taking from indigenous people with, with what they are not giving to indigenous students as presented as measure. Um, it's Kaylin's photographs, because as we are working, Kaylin is traveling all over the United States taking photographs of the individual parcels. Um, it's all of this working together. And then Bobby handing out his data set on GitHub um, that together makes the feeling because what happens, what is it that makes changes, what happens within us when we are listening or reading and beginning to understand. Um, so with everything together that makes, to me, that, ma that makes that feeling, um, which is a feeling hopefully of accountability and an obligation. Tristan, do you wanna add any? Oh, go, sorry, go ahead, Bobby, yeah. Just, just quickly to, to add to that, um, just cause it, 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 makes me, it makes me think um about how we were designing the the project um yeah really as a as a whole uh the way that i often describe this um is that it has sort of multiple levels of curation 
that invite um, the reader, the student, um, the researcher um, into the work on sort of different registers or different levels of, of curation. Um, the most curated is the, the story um, where Margaret's graphics um, and, the, and the text uh, work together to give an overview of uh, this problem and highlight how uh, our research approach could be used to tie back together histories uh, of indigenous peoples and universities that have been separated, uh, but were really connected in this uh, invisible way through these, uh, through these land parcels. Um, and then there's the website um, where individuals can look and sort of uh, choose their own adventure, um, navigate through, look at all the material that we could not describe in the story itself, because it's so, I mean, if we just had a paragraph on each of the 52 universities or each of the 250 uh, tribal nations involved, it's all of a sudden it goes from being a, uh, a story in a magazine to being an encyclopedia, right? Um, so you can explore on the, on the website all the data in this still curated way. I mean, the way that Jeff has put it together would be very visually striking to invite you in to do this um, exploration. Um, and then there is the data itself um, designed for researchers, designed for use in classrooms where you can, uh, where you can pull down that data yourself and you can build on it. Um, because one of the big things I think that we, we learned in doing, in doing this story and uh, Kristen was, was referencing some of it earlier about the, about the parcels of land that are still held uh, by some of these universities, uh, was figuring out how much we still don't know about land-grant universities and how they have benefited uh, from, this, um, from this form of wealth transfer. Uh, over time, I mean, we we collected a tremendous amount of data, but it is a is a small snippet of a much larger story that's still waiting to be told. Uh, and we were trying to provide some of the tools to to stimulate that conversation and to enable um, uh, students or researchers or journalists to to take that story out in different directions. Yeah, I will say that like the 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 overwhelming feeling. Um for me reading it is like, okay, there's so much here and there's so much that that is yet to be told. Um, like where are all that like, um, which is, which is, which makes the, which makes viewing it and reading, reading through and integrating kind of the images with the maps, with the text, um, feel like an invitation to do kind of further work and reflection. Like I thought about, you know, I spent a lot of time, my PhD was at Yale and there was a lot of, um, conversation while I was there about the way that the endowment was multiplying off Puerto Rican debt and investments in Puerto Rican debt as a form of, um, settler colonialism that the, that, you know, was paying for our education and sort of like the, the, the scale only, you know, only, you know, the only thing one could do is add more and more layers to it. And so I'm wondering um, sort of in terms of using, using this platform um, and database to engage um, students, whether students in classrooms or students sort of more in sort of kind of a public um, popular education realm, what have you seen? Um, what, what have you done? What have you seen um, other teachers doing to kind of draw audiences in in more like classroom and teaching settings to either um, 
use some of this data to contextualize where they are or even build on it, whether thinking about it sort of globally, internationally, um, beyond, the, by, beyond the United States um, or, or otherwise? Um, I mean, I can kind of go over some of the, uh, the, the big ticket items we've seen. I mean, uh, University of Missouri, for instance, is now using the story for their incoming freshman classes as required reading. We're seeing, uh, you know, Cornell University is, has their, their website up. So same with Ohio to start inviting folks in uh, to look at that information, do research uh, uh, on those institutions. Um, the Culture Center is uh, still putting together an actual curriculum, um, the, which uh, instructors can use, uh, similar to the 1619 uh, the Project's curriculum, as far as I understand. Um, so there's a, there's a number of different ways in which uh, we're, we're sort of seeing things here and there, but I think a lot of it is when we actually hear about it. Um, so everyone mentioned that under initiatives on like landgrabu.org, you can see what institutions are. Uh, but that information is basically as good as like what we get back from folks. So, you know, what, uh, you know, in terms of like, if there's been an institutional change, we kind of need to hear about it so we can include that, how folks are using that basis uh, is, I, I'm not completely clear on, maybe y'all have some better insight into that as well. I mean, what I guess what I can talk about in terms of like how that information is used, um, you know, my, my interest in terms of really making sure that uh, all those curated levels are accessible to folks um, is really of interest to make sure that other people who are able to report um, on that story too. So more journalists who are able to jump into that, more reporters, more who have researchers, et cetera. Because um, I'm, I'm obviously interested in, in the journalism that can be done around this. Um, you know, when this first came out, we had almost like two dozen partners who were going to do local versions of this story. But um, that was right when COVID hit the U.S. So we essentially like watched all of our <laughs> all of our drop off sometimes by the hour <laughs> um, as COVID was making it making its way through the US. Um, so we're really, we were actually really worried that nobody would actually read the story because uh, that was like lockdown happened right then, you know, just, it obviously was crazy. And there's only one story being told anywhere in the world and that was COVID. So we, we, we really, uh, we were really sad that we lost those partners, but um, you know, we saw pickups since then, like Scalawag magazine's done some really, really great uh, reporting around this and sort of like, pushed even further looking at uh, University of North Carolina, for instance, uh, there was like Ion Ohio who did stuff. You know, there's all these, when we still get requests from reporters who are really interested in digging into this and doing local of, uh, stories. So um, being able to sort of pull that together is really one of my interests of uh, thinking about, I don't know, teaching, although I'm not really a teacher, but uh, as a reporter, it's always trying to make sure that like audiences are getting what they need and uh, that they're getting it clearly, they're getting it coherently. And hopefully in this case, they're also getting a lot of extra information for them to take action instead of just passively reading um, too. So some of the thought behind that as well. Yeah, there are, uh, there's so much swirling around 
uh, the, the land grab university case uh, cases. Uh, there's also, um, in terms of Georgetown and Brown and others, uh, Emory University dealing with slave labor, the use of slave labor to build their universities. Um, also, there's the complicity, um, um, mostly of, of religious organizations, churches, uh, Christian churches with um, uh, boarding schools and um, that information that, that's coming out. So how do you see um, these things connected uh, in your work? I mean, for me, it's all about land, right? I mean, the Catholic Church is like the largest single landholder in the, like on the planet, basically, private land and And much of that is in the United States or North America or in areas where there are, you know, indigenous territories around the world. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of those other initiatives that you mentioned in examining slavery, um, you know, one of the things that I think we pointed out in the story was that we can put dollar amounts on things, actual lands. Um, you know, the difference, the difference in response, I think, is one question to university, maybe more than us, in that we have all of the receipts and the information, uh, but there's been collectively no real action from universities. Uh, that, that, that action is coming from faculty, students, folks that are invested in, in having institutions that are more fair and more just. Um, but I would, my, I would argue that those institutions aren't really all that interested in that. Um, we can provide the information. We can help you find the information. We can, you know, all of this information is here and you can take action, as I said. The question is, why isn't there action is uh, more of a question for institutions than us, maybe. I'm sure we can theorize all day, so. But the connective tissue between those, those two uh, ideas there, I think, is land, um, how that land was acquired and what you do with that land when you know that it's not yours. If I could connect the, the slavery in the university um, issue to the, to the last question um, about pedagogy, uh, speaking as a, as a historian, what I um, really hope to see come out of, uh, of this project um, was to see students at, at universities and classes that dug back into their archives uh, to deepen the story here in a way that um, there have been seminars and projects uh, at a lot of universities in the recent past, including my own here at the University of Cambridge. There's one going on uh, right now investigating the history of slavery um, in the university. Um, and that could be one really fruitful uh, method to build uh, to build on this work. I mean, you mentioned um, Yale University earlier. One of the things that was left on the cutting room floor of the of the story is uh, some documents in the, is it the uh, Beinecke um, Library at at Yale describing um, the scholarship recipients um, who receive scholarships based out of the Morrill Act. There, you can imagine going in with a group of students and seeing what was the outcomes, uh, what were the outcomes for for these individuals uh, who received, uh, you know, students from Connecticut who received Morrill Act um, endowment scholarships. Um, 
to the to the to the Sheffield School of, of Science um, there. And you could imagine other projects like that. Um, for the most part, I think we've seen um, people reading this in, in classes. I've heard about people doing um, having uh, structuring lessons where first they taught about the land grant university system and then they showed the land grant uh, land grab universities project as sort of a pull the veil uh, over uh, you know over the eyes um, type of, type of lesson. We've seen lots of creative lessons, people thinking about, you know, going going to parcels. We've heard about people in statistics classes using um, the data set to, as a as a way to teach both historical content um, and and statistics. Um, one of the lessons on the land grab use site um, comes from a geologist who's using it to think about um, uh, to think about uh, the legacies of uh, racism in STEM. Um, and it's been one of the really interesting things for me, you know, we all sort of have our disciplinary blinders on. And for me, I was thinking about students going into the archives. Um, and what's been surprising for me is uh, hearing about people talking about this, uh, reading, reading the, the article at law schools to talk about transitional justice or medical schools to think about uh, disparities in uh, in, in healthcare uh, in the United States, particularly as it relates to indigenous um, communities, things that were you know off my off my radar. Uh, so it's been really exciting to see the sort of interdisciplinary um, is interdisciplinary use of the material. Um, and as to the the um, the other question about how this connects to other issues like um, like the uh, like the boarding school uh, issue that has been um, in the in the news lately. Um, I think about this as part of sort of the larger story of the making of the settler colonial present, right? You know, this uh, the the legacies in the in the present of genocidal violence, um, of extractive colonialism, of cultural erasure. Um, and they're they're all connected as part of this this program of of displacement and the redirection of, of resources. Um, it's also worth noting um, that although uh, land grant universities in the 19th century are associated with uh, scientific agriculture um, and you know what we think of as A and M universities, um, a lot of universities in uh, in the United States, you know, from the colonial period. Um, got their start as uh, you know as potential colleges for uh, Indian children, and these universities also received uh, uh, things like land grants from the from the colonies. So there is so there are some earlier connections. There are land grant universities um, that are about agricultural and mechanical education. Um, there are also ones you know if you, you think about places like Dartmouth um, or uh, or William and Mary. Um, places that were eager to take in indigenous uh, students, often uh, against their will. Bobby has just put a myriad of master's and doctoral thesis ideas out there. <laughs> I hope everyone's taking notes if they're looking for a thesis topic. I think of um, one of the books that I teach in the class that I the class is called is a basically religious histories of the Americas is um, Lisa Brooks book Our Beloved Kin which ha which is a history of King Philip's War um, and there's a whole chapter about the Harvard Indian College and the ways that um, sort of 
pedagogical discipline, discipline and um, sort of physical terror and also kind of the elimination of language ends up becoming part of the sort of ideological foundation for American literature as like a sort of established like genre and canon. But there's also a mapping kind of um, GIS platform associated with it. And I think that like used in conjunction with so often students in the Northeast, um, Saratoga Springs are who are the which I, I teach at Skidmore College are like really interested in sort of hearing, okay, this is kind of a local thing to many of us who come from sort of upstate New York or Western Massachusetts or Connecticut, like lots of students regionally from that area, but it's kind of using something like that in conjunction with land grab you to bring these histories into the present. Um, but of course they're always in the present, but to really be able to see them and then to say, okay, what are what what's the next step we're gonna take to try to understand. Um, the places that um, that we are inhabiting right now and occupying. Um, so that just yeah, that just came to mind. I guess um, one of one of the one of the questions that I'd love to sort of dig into a little bit more is um, I'm losing my I'm losing my train of thought. Is I guess what like what questions if you all were to like get a like big grant of money grant of like you know a couple million dollars to do a next step for the project what would you all do like what would you make what um what what is the question that is like hanging down that you would like want to run after right now if if you could do that well I'll start uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it was just continued down this vein here would probably be those other, uh, the other acts that Bobby talked about at the opening of the show here from uh, the to uh, the Homestead Act, I think it would be an incredible project to be able to go through and start doing the same, the same work around this uh, for those and just have this as kind of like a, a trilogy in those areas. Um, you know, the other area is to do more of a global look. Uh, we saw in the NYSA journal that came out with, uh, with writing on the project that there are a lot of connections to uh, other similar um, actions taken around the world. And that seems like a place also to look too. So maybe, so I guess it's three projects. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Homestead Act, Railroad Act, and then global land grab there. So. Yeah, I'll go with that for now. Well, uh, uh, an active grant proposals. Yeah, I don't I don't think they I think I would have heard something by now. So I don't think they've been successful, but I think this is uh um my my aspirations uh to uh to take this in a uh new and more ambitious direction um would be to understand to to um pursue a similar uh, databasing project, but beyond, uh, beyond the Morrill Act. Um, there are um, colleges that were funded by land grants that didn't come through the Morrill Act. This was another one of the uh, discoveries uh, of this project, so to, so to speak. I mean, you'll notice a close readers of the, of the project uh, will often ask us, well, where's Oklahoma? Where's Alaska? Uh, and because we were focused on the Morrill Act of 1862, um, although the University of Alaska, uh, Oklahoma State are 
land grant universities, they received their grants through different laws, not through the Morrill Act of 1862. So they fell outside of our, our purview. Um, I'd like to see a project that widens that purview um, and, uh, and really comes to grips with the um, extent of uh, this form of institutional development through the redirection of indigenous uh, resources uh, in uh, in the United States. I mean, even more globally, uh, it could uh, it could be pursued. I mean, that would take quite a bit of money. Um, uh, but yeah, there are a lot of open questions about um, where this practice starts, how it takes shape, what its true um, global footprint is. Um, something that we weren't able to pursue in this story, but is a natural um, step out of it, and something we've been sort of evangelical evangelizing uh, about as we've talked about this is the the need to understand the full financial ramifications uh, of this i mean this is a this is a naughty problem in in economic history um trying to understand um uh the the, the sort of um the, the profits from extractive colonialism in the americas in africa uh in in southeast asia um trying to figure out what are the long-term uh, benefits um, and losses um, from this mode of, of resource, uh, resource transfer. Um, so that would be really great to be able to uh, try and try and figure that out. But yeah, we'll have to find some funders for something that ambitious. I'll add something that is more like a tangent, not specifically on the subject of this project, which is um, getting back to the problematic source of Charles Royce's Indian Land Sessions text, which was really a hindrance, I would say, to our project, because um, we're forced to rely on it for the identities of tribes, which are um, not at their, many of them are disconnected from indigenous nations and communities names today. And so um, it makes it really difficult to um, tie land tra transactions to current to contemporary nations. And also, as I mentioned before, he lumps seizures and um, thefts and everything together as one thing called a session. Um, so I feel like it affected our database. It affected the way that our that the maps, both online and in print, are interpreted, the way people read them, the way that the narrative is written. And what we need is a critical analysis of Royce's project. Maybe someone is working on that right now, and I will be first in line to <laughs> read your analysis if you are. And then we also need a new book with new authors. Um, because tribes know their, they know their treaties and their, um, their individual, their communities stories, and it's a matter of collaborating. Yeah, let's hope some uh, really wealthy grant givers are out there listening to all these uh, necessary projects that lay ahead to complete the, the narratives. Um, well, I have a political kind of question. Uh, there's a new U.S. Secretary of the Interior 
who I'm whom I'm assuming is also uh, head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and you know all that history is rather fraught to say the least. Um, Deb Haland um, has the Secretary of the Interior. Does she know about your project? Do her people know? Are they inter Are you interacting with them? Uh, is your project making a difference in in any kind of um, uh, Biden-Harris administration here? I think the shorter answer is no to all of those. But I have trolled Deb Holland online when she mentions land-grant universities uh, by sharing information related to those tweets. It's about as good as I could say here, so. Yeah, there hasn't uh, been much indication. One of the things that I, I didn't like about the inauguration was uh, uh, Vice President Harris's speech where she praised the Morrill Act in the conventional celebratory mode, I think, along with the Pacific Railway uh, Act. So um, it definitely had not um, bubbled up uh, to that level by that point in time, and I haven't seen any uh, indications to the, to the contrary. Um, I should say that another, uh, another place uh, where it would be uh, politically quite useful um, to have uh, this be read by lawmakers would be in the states, um, in the states that uh, still hold Morrill Act land and lease it out. Um, that is where um, any type of action on land return would have to would have to take place because um, that land has been turned over to these states. They generally are in control of it um, uh, as sort of trustees for the for the universities, um, and that is where um, that is where pressure for things like land uh, land return could be most effective. I think. Yeah, I think. I mean, I the sort of. Um... The sort of we will hat tip the histories of colonialism and then emphasize how great the moral act was or how great public education was. I think it sort of speaks to a theme that's been on our podcast for the last few um, few episodes where we've done we did an episode on um, the occupation of Palestine in BDS and another one on sort of university pillaging of cities. And I think both of those conversations we've had and also this one kind of belie this universities are always a public good and they continue to be a public good and sort of who's public public, um, what public are we talking about here and at whose, at whose expense? Um, I think about the, I am, I'm recording from Tennessee right now, which is where I grew up and think about their statement. Although UT has been an overall force for good during the last 225 years, it's imperative that we never forget the injustices towards indigenous people. And it's like, what happened in that although statement um, that sort of fuels, and I think that, you know, the Harris stuff, the um, tweet, battles um i think are kind of speak speak to the dissonance that it, within a sentence like that um well i have a i oh, have yeah. a utopian thing to add to that lucia which is um very utopian uh what might higher education look like after uh decolonization and abolition is there an after yeah is there an after i mean if if we had that you know the vision of the future, very utopian, but what would you, what would you hope for? Um, you know, say a university uh, somehow amazingly 
did the just right thing of returning land, except, I mean, what would it look like curricularly to systemically? Oh, that's a whole nother podcast, y'all. Um, okay. Let me think. I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I don't know. I, when, when I sort of think about what that would look like and have thought about it in the past, it's probably more things that look like tribal college models. Um, it's probably something that looks like maybe some of those universities just don't really exist anymore. Um, you know, I mean, we're, when we're, you know, we're playing in the area of decolonization as not a metaphor, um, you know, the, you know, what is currently known as the United States looks very, very different. Um, that probably means uh, many institutions that have been, you know, sort of come to be thought as, as like standard issue, like here to stay kind of things may not be there anymore. Um, I mean, as a, as a student of a tribal college myself, um, you know, I, I, that education is very, very different uh, than what you would see at uh, a state school, for, for instance, uh, although there are similarities, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of that utopia down the line that you're talking about, you know, probably a lot of these places just aren't around anymore. Um, and some of the places that do exist now that don't get a lot of love or support are maybe the, uh, you know, the Harvards of Indian country, for lack of a better, a better like allegory here in terms of institutions. But um, yeah, I think those uh, cultural institutions that are educating students in ways that are important to uh, those. So that's a really vague, broad answer, but we can talk about that one all day. No, thanks. Thanks for another time, for another podcast. It is, it is a big question, and I don't think there is a, uh, there is a, a single answer. I think one of the, um, one of the best things that uh, some universities have done in response uh, to this project is to start to reach out um, to the nations whose land uh, became these endowments. I know Cornell's project uh, is starting to do this. I know Ohio State um, is interested in doing this. Um, and yeah, how we get to uh, the sort of a utopian future is a, is a big and difficult question, but I think it's uh, the way that it will proceed is through small steps. I remember um, we were giving a talk on this project at the University of Wisconsin uh, four or five months ago, and this issue, which always comes up of, you know, what do, what do we do now? Um, came up and one of the great things about this discussion was that it was really a discussion with the group. It wasn't just a couple of us on the project uh, talking about what we had done. And one of the ideas in the, in the room was uh, why don't uh, we not just uh, increase, uh, try to increase enrollments um, from uh, the nations who were affected by the Morrill Act, uh, but give tribal governments a say in the admissions process, uh, which seems like one of those sort of decolonial programs to say, you know, let go of, uh, let go of uh, hold of the admissions process uh, and give it to someone else who might know better what's best uh, for their community to sort of rethink um, how the, the university operates. Um, so uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, those types of changes are, are necessary, but I think they're gonna come through through small 
uh, from small steps unless there is something uh, catastrophic on the horizon, which I guess I wouldn't rule out these days. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and ask the last question that we ask um, all our uh, podcast guests, which is um, for you to share with us what you are reading, listening to, um, in, you know, what, what are you encountering in culture and, and maybe popular culture that, is, that has been inspiring to you? And it can be anything from, you know, reality TV to some highbrow book. I'll start. I just finished reading uh, Sheila Wadkultier's The Right to Be Cold. I don't know if any of you have read that book. Um, I loved it and would uh, did find it inspiring. She is the Inuit leader and activist who um, made the case for the right to traditional livelihoods and culture, in this case, the right to ice, the right to be cold as a human right, um, among many other important um, policy actions on behalf of her people. And in this book, she tells a story of her life in a way that is um, very candid and um, shows how her dedication to um, to working for um, Inuit people on a global stage, how that came to be in terms of the way that she grew up. She explains what it was like to grow up in Nunavut and um, what happened when she became an adult. And when she started working on policy actions and what was hard and what went wrong and why it went wrong. Um, she talked about her emotional or spiritual life during those challenges. And it's so instructive um, in terms of her whole being. So if that's something that appeals to you, I, I loved it and, and learned, learned many things from her from reading that book. Oh, great, I've, I've got it on my list now. Um, Bobby, you wanna go next? Um, yeah, I'll tell you something I was reading. I don't know if I would call it um, inspiring, but I do think everyone should read it, is the uh, IPCC report uh, on climate that just came out. Um, it's, it's hard going, uh, but there are different levels uh, to it that you can look through. If you are not a uh, scientist like, like myself, um, there are versions for, for policymakers and there are headlines. Um, and it is uh, it's sobering, uh, sobering stuff um, and necessary, uh, necessary, I think, I think to read. So I would encourage everyone to, to read it, even if it's not the most, uh, not the most uh, enjoyable or inspiring thing. I think it's, uh, it's necessary to encounter. Okay, Tristan. I appreciate your light reading, Bobby. <laughs> um, I just uh, I just finished up a uh, graphic novel called Special Exits. Uh, it's by an author named Joyce Farmer, um, which is uh, about her parents' sort of final years and months and days. Uh, um, it's a really it was a really really nice, uh, quite beautiful read. I'm quite interested in sequential art and uh, comics as uh, as 
sort of modes of storytelling. Um, so I feel like uh, I kind of jump in and then jump out of these to sort of like look and think about stuff and, um, you know, uh, maybe even aspire to sort of play around with the medium more in the future. Um, but um, that's what I read recently. And then watched the first episode of Revolution Dogs last night. So um, got, my, got my weekend worked out to see the rest. Oh, good. All right, Lucia, what are you reading, watching, listening to? I really recommend right now the, um, all the resources really, but I've been really digging the podcast of the Monument, Monument Lab, which is a Philadelphia-based um, sort of public arts, public history um, organization that tries to like re reflect on and rethink public space. I use their resources a ton in my classes when I ask students to go out and document and kind of do um, historical projects and ethnographic projects on monuments um, around Saratoga Springs. And they recently, they recently got a huge grant from the Mellon Foundation um, and have used some of those resources to really build up some of their kind of public education um, stuff. And part of that includes a, a public art and public history podcast that talks to different artists and public historians and activists who are doing really interesting kind of public arts, public education work. Um, and yeah, that's so monumentlab.com is where you can find all the all the stuff there. And Tina, do you want to close us out? Well, I'm uh, re I reread a graphic novel uh, or graphic uh, creative fiction, I guess, not novel. Uh, that I, I use um, pieces of in my religion and ecology class. Um, to the the overall framework is about environmental racism, um, and it's called Oak Flat: A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West by Lauren Redness. Highly recommended. Beautifully illustrated. Um, I love that. With with um, important text and a shout out to our very first religion and social justice major at Agnes Scott College, Colleen Wessel McCoy, who works with the Kairos Institute and the <clears throat> with uh, Bishop Barber uh, and the uh, Poor People's Campaign, who has been part of this protest out in in the West in Arizona. So, so that's what I've picked up again, and I have new eyes to read it with, uh, thanks to the three of you. Well, thanks to the three of you so much for coming on the on the podcast and and sharing your your project with us here as well as just the, the resources that you have um, offered to to anyone who wants to navigate to landgrabview.org um, to check out what's there and just um, kind of dive in and continue this continue this work. Yes, thank you so so much. Thank you for having us. It's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah thanks for the invitation. listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Robert Lee, Tristan Atone, and 
Margaret Pierce on land grab universities. And you can see their wonderful project on landgrabu.org. Aaliyah Harris is our wonderful audio engineer. Percy Thompson was our summer intern. On behalf of Lucia Holsether and myself, we want to thank everyone who has supported this podcast over the last uh, four and a half years. Uh, If you would like to donate uh, and help us out, we are on patreon.org slash radpedagogy. Our outro music was by Acrasis. Max Bowen raps guitar and Mark McKee beats and trumpet. It's called Innermost Jewelry and it's from Children Singing in Hell available on bandcap.com. And as always, our wonderful theme song was done by Lance Eric Hagen along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Until next time. Lethargy too immature to handle love or emerging love handles fill the suburban china cabinets with decorative empty urns as where we hide our emptiness in plain sight fictional turban clad arrows incinerate picturesque off-white ideologues that clog the blogosphere when i feel down i use my imagination and my imagination uses me up Future is one soaking nostalgia, love tore us apart. Indifference brings us together. This average lifespan of 70 some Novembers. Where did this year go? And the past few, too. Gentle people end up alone, selectively removed from the rest till they can't pose a threat despite their copious diary and who's exposing this unaddressed regret. Aimlessness manifests as an unswerving march towards death.